Great. Well, let me uh, encourage you. If you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, I want to encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 2. This is, uh, we're in a series in the book of Acts together as a, as a church all fall. We have been studying the book of Acts together. Uh, this is actually the fourth week we've been in chapter 2, but we are going to wrap that chapter up today. Just to kind of reset the, the scene for you, Acts chapter 2 describes what happened on the day of Pentecost, on the day that the church was born. On that day, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the people, and uh, Peter stood up and he preached a sermon on that day, and some 3,000 people responded to that message. And then right at the end of that chapter, there's these six verses that give us a description of what the early church was like. So the day of Pentecost is the beginning of the church. Then these verses describe what that church was like. And so the question we're really exploring today is what is the church? Now, if you were to go out on the street and you were to ask uh, random people that question, what is the church? What do you, what do you think of the church? Uh, you would get, you know, a wide variety of answers. Everything on the spectrum is what you would hear from people. And I would say that even if we were to go around the room here today, or, or if you were to ask people who have some experience in the church, you would get a variety of responses to that question, what is the church? Not all of it, as you know, would be positive. Um, in the novel, Wheat That Springeth Green by J.F. Powers, one of the characters uh, in that book compares the church to a ship, and he says this, this is a big old ship, Bill. She creaks, she rocks, she rolls, and at times she makes you want to throw up. But she gets where she's going, always has, always will, until the end of time, with or without you. Um, that's a, a fair description of what some people's experience in the church. I mean, the church is this big ship, and it is getting to where it is supposed to go. It will. There's no doubt about it. Not everyone has a positive experience. So some people identify with uh, Flannery O'Connor, one of his, uh, one of Flannery O'Connor's in-laws, who started attending church because he came one time and he and he thought the service was so horrible. He knew there must be something else that makes the people keep coming. Um, that's true for some people. I mean, what is it about you know these people, or what is it about this that that makes people just keep coming? Even C.S. Lewis, one of the most influential uh, thinkers in the history of Christianity, describes his initial experience in the church in less than flattering terms. He said this, I disliked very much their hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Now, I know I started on kind of a downer note, but I actually think that last comment by C.S. Lewis, the last line of that, helps us get pointed in the right direction. The church does have lots of faults. There may be things that make you want to throw up at times through history. But when it is at its best, and when the church functions the way it is supposed to function, there is nothing like it on earth. There is no other institution that is like it. The church is God's idea. It is His institution. And this passage we're looking at today in Acts chapter 2 gives us a glimpse 
of what the early church was like and really gives us a glimpse of what the church is supposed to be like. So let me read for you Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Here's what it says. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, that is a a fairly familiar passage of Scripture, and I think for good reason. Um, It very succinctly identifies the characteristics of what a Spirit-filled church looks like. And uh, those of you who've been around Crossridge for a while will be familiar with these verses, because when we started this church some 12 years ago, it was those verses that we drew upon quite regularly. In fact, we have five core values as a church, and those five core values come out of these verses in Acts chapter 2. So I know, um, so I've highlighted those. I'm really just walking you through our core values today, but really taken from these verses in Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to give you five points. Before I give you the first one, I'm just going to tell you that all of the points begin with the words, a people. Now, I know it's pretty basic teaching on the church, but I think it is worth remembering at the outset that the church is not a building, but a people. Uh, You might have grown up in an era where, uh, you know, this was a, uh, there was a popular nursery rhyme that, that went like this, right? This is the church. This is its steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Right? Any of you experienced that as a, as a child um, or at some point in your life? But in actuality, this is not a church. This is a building. This is a church. It is the people. It's a people of God. So that's kind of the starting place. We are grateful for the building that God has given to us, but the church ultimately is the people. And Acts chapter 2 demonstrates that the church is the people of God, called out from every nation, every tribe, and language. And you'll see here that the early church, the early Christians, met both in the temple courts and and in people's homes, and they were no less the church in one location than they were in the other. So I want to begin by saying the church is a people shaped by God's word. This passage begins by saying, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that's a really important word for us to understand. It's it's an important reminder. So think again about the context of Acts chapter 2. What has happened in Acts chapter 2? What happened is the Holy Spirit came and the Holy Spirit was poured out on all of the people. And yet the very first thing it tells us about the early church is not that they were devoted to their experience, but that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So they weren't like those who would say, well, look, you know what, we've, we've got the Holy Spirit, we don't need anyone to teach us. No, in fact, the Spirit made them say, we devote ourselves to what the apostles are teaching. 
And I think this passage is, a, is also a corrective to individuals and churches who simply neglect the word and don't see its importance in their life or in the life of their church. One of the most significant contributions of the Protestant Reformation was the return of the expositional biblical sermon to a prominent place in worship gatherings. This is how it has been actually from the beginning of the church. And we need a reformation like that today. We need to return to the centrality of God's word and the centrality of the preaching of God's word. Now, I know it it might seem old fashioned, but this is actually what we do here. It's what we try to do here Sunday by Sunday. There's nothing fancy that happens here. I kind of get a a, a chuckle out of it, of uh, some of the churches who sort of self-promote on social media by saying things like, this Sunday is going to be epic or awesome or soul-shaking or something like that. And part of the reason I chuckle at that is because I always read those types of announcements with my internal monster truck voice, right? (laughs) This Sunday. Now, many of you know, if you've been around Crossridge for any length of time, there is no one getting shot out of a cannon here on Sunday morning. No one is ziplining to the stage. There's no flying crosses. We do what the church has always done, is that we open God's word together. Here's how it's described in the book of Nehemiah. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I mean, this is what we try to do. Week in and week out. We open this book, we read from it, we give the sense of it so that you understand it, so that you can live by it. And I love this quote about, from Acts chapter 2, uh, from John Stott, what he, as he commented on these verses, he said, So we affirm that a living church is a learning church, a church submissive to the teaching authority of the apostles. Its pastors expound scripture from the pulpit. Its parents teach their children out of the scriptures at home. Its members read and reflect on the scriptures every day in order to grow in Christian discipleship. And then he said, the spirit of God leads the people of God to honor the word of God. Fidelity to the teaching of the apostles is the first mark of an authentic and living church. Now, I think we could stop right there and we could kind of, you know, maybe pat ourselves on the back a little bit, right? I mean, as a church, we are committed to teaching God's Word. We're devoted to doing that. Uh, uh, As a congregation, many of you faithfully study the Scriptures. You take advantage of all the learning opportunities provided by the church. I mean, our community groups and our men's and women's Bible studies have a good participation rate in them. If being devoted to the apostles' teaching simply meant studying their teaching, then as a church, we're doing quite well. But I think it means more than that. It is actually what John Stott said here, that we're devoted to learning and living God's Word. So it's one thing to know what God's Word says. It's often quite another to do what it says. Now, I I know I've told you this before, but it has been many years since I I told this to you. But when our kids were much younger, like a lot younger, uh, we had a daily routine in our home that we called the high five. And the high five consisted of five things that we expected our kids to do every morning. Uh, the, The high five consisted of these things. It was get dressed, eat breakfast, make your bed, brush your teeth, and then wipe the counter when you're done. 
They would do those five things. They would come. They would literally get a high five. That was the high five routine. Now, just imagine if I said to our oldest son one day, I said, Josh, I want you to go and do your high five. And let's say a couple of hours he came back to me and he said, you know what, dad? I've been thinking about that list. I've been thinking about the high five list, those five things that you told me I ought to do every day. Uh, It's actually made a real impact on me. I've been thinking about it. I memorized the list. In fact, I could quote it to you forwards and backwards. I I wrote a song about it. It actually had such an impact that I called up a bunch of my friends. They're coming over tonight. We're going to talk about that list. But let's say that he said all of that while he was still standing there in his pajamas. Get dressed was the first thing on the list, right? Would you consider that he was devoted to my teaching? No, thank you. (laughs) Being devoted or being shaped by the word is about more than just knowing it. It's about living it. And this passage goes on to describe the early church as people who lived what the apostles taught. That's what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. The book of James puts it this way, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. One of my life verses, Uh, is from the Old Testament, from the book of Ezra. And there it says, For Ezra had set his his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. What does it mean to be shaped by God's word? It means to study it. It means to do it. And it means to share it with others. That's who we want to be as a church. We want to be a community that is shaped by God's word. It has an influence on the way we think and the way that we live. Second thing we see here is that the church is a people committed to one another. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Now, I have a a bit of a love-hate relationship with the word fellowship. Um, Don't get me wrong, it is a good biblical word, but it's a word that sometimes gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles. So we have, you know, times of fellowship, which sometimes just means, you know, we we shook hands in the service, or we have fellowship halls, which might just mean a place where we eat meals. The root of that word fellowship is common. Fellowship refers to what it is that we share in common. And when we hear the word fellowship, like they devoted themselves to the fellowship, we ought to think about the kind of fellowship that is on display in the fellowship of the ring. A group of people, or elves, or dwarves, or whatever, drawn together by a common bond and working together on a common mission. Now, as Christians, what we hold in common, what we hold together is our relationship with God through Jesus. This is what the Apostle John wrote. He said, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So by virtue of our relationship with God, we have fellowship with one another. Now again, it's one thing to define fellowship, but often another thing to live it out. The essence of genuine fellowship is people who are radically committed to one another. So it's the kind of fellowship we read about in these verses. Listen again to verses 44 to 46. It says there, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And as they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Those verses are are kind of troubling, aren't they? I mean, if that's the picture of fellowship, even if we agree with the idea of fellowship, doesn't this sound a little bit extreme? I mean, selling your possessions and giving the proceeds to those around you. Well, these verses do not endorse communism. In fact, these verses exemplify the opposite of communism. Uh, Communism is a sharing of goods, but it's an enforced sharing of goods on the basis that no one has the right to own anything. Communism is a compulsory sharing and therefore has nothing to do with the kind of generosity you see demonstrated here. The sharing of, of possessions that's described here was a spontaneous expression of love for one another. What it, what it meant is when they saw a brother or sister in need, they went out of their way to meet those needs, even if it meant the selling of their possessions so that that person could have food or clothing or shelter. Now, the fact that they still own houses in which to meet in is an indication it's okay to own property, Now, if our response to all of that is to kind of breathe a sigh of relief and then say, well, you know, I guess I'm off the hook when it comes to making sacrifices, uh, I think we're just as guilty of reading it the wrong way. The early Christians were characterized by their generosity. They were known for it. And I think we should be as well. Now, sometimes, you know, people convince themselves they're really generous with their stuff when all they're really doing is getting rid of stuff they don't like anymore. I I call this the junk for Jesus approach to giving, right? So you take all of the stuff that you couldn't sell at your garage sale or on marketplace, and then you pack it up in a box and you drop it off at the church or you take it to the thrift store or whatever. Like, look how generous I am so that you can just go buy newer, nicer stuff. That's not what's being described here, right? This is a radical kind of generosity, The first Christians shared their goods because they were generous, and they were generous because they learned that generosity from God. They knew what he had done for them. Now, I've just focused on the material aspect of what it means to be radically committed to one another, but that's really just one part of it. It's clear from this passage that these early believers were close to one another. It says they were in each other's homes. They attended the temple together. They spent time together. And as Christians, I think we're in desperate need of this kind of community, this kind of closeness. I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who uh, moved to Vancouver from Toronto, and we were talking about what it was like to sort of settle into a, a new city and form new relationships and, and how that was going. 
And he described his experience. He, he said, you know, I, I found that the people in Vancouver are tourist friendly. And what he meant by that is, you know, that if he would walk down the street, people were polite. They would smile. Um, if he asked for directions, you know, they would tell him, oh, it's, you got to go, you got to take a left at the next street or, or something like that. They had that kind of friendliness, but no real interest or time to form new relationships. Didn't want to expend the energy to do that. And I wonder how often it's the case that we could be described in the church as being tourist friendly. Like, I mean, we're happy to say hi. We're happy to shake hands during the greeting time. We're happy to tell someone, oh, you know, the kids' ministry is over there. But how often do we take the time to actually get to know one another, to engage in their lives, to bear each other's burdens? It's one of the reasons we encourage people to be in a community group because you get to know the people in your group and you pray for one another and you share with one another. And sometimes what you have to share is great stuff that's happening in your life. And sometimes what you have to share is the the difficult stuff that's going on. We need that kind of community. We need to be radically committed to one another's well-being. Third characteristic of the church is that it's a people centered on Jesus. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread doesn't just refer to eating meals together, though that is something they they did as well and something we ought to do as well. But the breaking of bread, as it's described here, refers to remembering Jesus' sacrifice through a shared meal. So in the early church, it seems like the Lord's Supper was, in fact, a meal that you would share together and not just a, uh, you know, a little morsel of bread and a thimble of, of grape juice. But it wasn't the size of the meal that mattered. It was the significance of the meal. What did this represent? And what it represented was a remembrance of what Jesus had done for them, that he had paid the price for their sins by his sacrifice on the cross. So the Apostle Paul tells us that for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we celebrate the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis at Crossridge. And we do that, as we do that, we are reminding one another that the basis of our fellowship is the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That's what unites us. That is the center of the Christian faith. Now, not everyone is on board with that. I came across an interesting tweet recently. Uh, Michael Gungor was at at one point a a prominent writer and producer of worship music, think early 2000s. Somewhere along the way, he deconstructed his faith, left the church that he founded and all that went with it. He said he's been experimenting with returning to church, but he wants to do so on his terms, and he seemingly wants to find one that doesn't focus so much on Jesus' death. Here's his tweet. Here was his tweet. He said, I'm currently sitting in a worship service and the guy is singing about the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I just came here because I wanted a space to be in my heart and to be in prayer, peace for the world. Can we not give the bloodlust a rest even here? I wouldn't describe it as bloodlust, but the answer is no. I mean, we gather to remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And without the cross at the center, we don't have a Christian faith. 
Now, I think we should remember it's not just those who are deconstructing or who have deconstructed who minimize the centrality of the cross. Some churches seem to forget this as well. They function more like a social club or a good moral society. Sermons in some churches start to sound like five steps to a healthier, happier you. I remember hearing one uh, pastor say, you know, he traveled around, visited a bunch of different churches, and his conclusion from the sermons that he heard in most of those churches was, it's good to be good and it's nice to be nice. That's not actually the message of the gospel. That's not the message of the New Testament. Now, there are practical things you can learn and ought to learn in church, but we're, we gather together around the shared idea that Jesus died for our sins and has given us new life. He's been raised to new life. You know, I thought about this uh, just in the context of my own role as a pastor, as a, as a preacher, teacher. Um, I had an opportunity to take a, a class on preaching Christ from the Old Testament a number of years ago. And one of the most helpful things I remember from that class is that the, the professor said, you know, you ought to take all of your Old Testament sermons and you ought to see if they pass the synagogue test. And what he meant by that is, if I could just as easily preach this sermon in a synagogue, there's nothing distinctly Christian about it. See, we keep Jesus at the center and we know that he is the key to understanding all of the Bible, including the Old Testament. Read through the book of Acts and you will find that all of the preaching centers on Jesus. In fact, all of it centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, you can't read very far in the New Testament without bumping into the cross. You come across it again and again. All of the ethics that we are instructed to do, they're all grounded in what Christ has done for us. So Paul himself will say this, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the true church is always centered on Jesus and what he's done for us. Fourth characteristic of the church is a people dependent on God. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now keep in mind, most of these first Christians were Jewish. They had a custom already of prayer. They were accustomed to making daily visits to the temple for the sole purpose of praying. You can see it in the very first verse of Acts chapter 3. Just fast forward one verse from the end of our passage. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This was their regular custom. But it's interesting, the early Christians did not do away with this commitment to a formalized, structured time of prayer together. And I think it's instructive to us because sometimes we, we tend to polarize between structured, formalized worship and those that are more, more spontaneous or free-flowing. The reality is we need both. And we read about both in this passage, right? They devoted themselves to the prayers. That's the formal side. But also it says as they met in each other's homes, they were praising God together. The important point is wherever they met, whatever their gatherings looked like, they praised God for who he was or for who he is and what he's done. But it's all, it also demonstrated their utter dependence on God. And again, I think that's really needed today. It's so easy for a church to become dependent on marketing and production and programs. And to, to begin to measure our health that way. But church history demonstrates that when revival has broken out in churches, it's often broken out in the prayer meeting. 
as God's people gather together and they seek the face of God together. A church ought never to lose sight of the fact that they exist by the grace of God and that apart from Him, we can do nothing. So listen to just a small sampling of the church at prayer in the book of Acts. When they needed to select a replacement for Judas, they prayed. Acts chapter 1, it says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Or when Peter and John were released from prison, they held a prayer meeting, and it says in Acts 4, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As they contemplated sending out missionaries, they prayed. So Acts 13, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The early church prayed when they were selecting elders. It says, And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. All of these verses show us a church that wasn't reliant on their own planning, their own wisdom, but a church that was dependent on God to lead them, to guide them. And that's how we ought to approach God. We ought to see ourselves as a church, as people, as being completely dependent on God. The language is a bit archaic, but B.B. Warfield once said this. He said, He who comes to God in prayer comes not in a spirit of self-assertion, but in a spirit of trustful dependence. No one ever addressed God in prayer thus, O God, thou knowest that I am the architect of my own fortunes and the determiner of my own destiny. Thou mayest indeed do something to help me in the securing of my purpose after I've determined upon them, but my heart is my own and thou canst bend it. When I wish thy aid, I will call on thee for it. Meanwhile, thou must await my pleasure. See, the reason no one approaches God in prayer like that is because you're not going to bother with prayer if that's what you think. If you think you're the captain of your own destiny, you're the architect of everything, you don't need God. If you recognize that everything good is dependent on the Lord, you come to Him in prayer. And as a church, that's what we want to do. We want to come together in prayer. The reason we invite you, for instance, on a Sunday morning to come down to the to front for prayer is because we don't have a program that will fix everything that's going on. But we have a God who hears us when we pray, and so we come to Him together and we say, Lord, You have the wisdom. You have the answers. Final thing we learn from this portrait of the early church is that the church is a people focused on mission. I'm going to go quick with this one uh, just because of time, but look at verse 47 as it describes this church. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's clear from this verse that the rapid growth of the early church was the result of God's activity. He added to their number those who were being saved. But I think it's also clear from this passage that as these believers met together, as they worshiped God, as they loved one another, they attracted the attention of a watching world. As it says here, they gained favor with all the people. That's part of the mission of the church. We live our lives before the people around us. 
The mission statement of our church is that we exist to know Jesus and to make him known. So how do we do that? What does it look like to be mission focused? I mean, should we all go buy a sandwich board and a megaphone? Is that how we're going to do it? Now, God may call people to do it differently. And I am all for evangelism training programs, teaching people how to share their faith. I think that's really important. But I think sometimes we forget that one of the best evangelism programs that we have is to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, it's to devote ourselves to the fellowship, radically loving one another, it's to the breaking of bread that we do, and to prayer. That's the mission of the church. That we gather here, we get strengthened, and we go out into the world, and we live our lives to the glory of God. So we began with the question, what is the church? Here's my working definition from this passage. The church is the people of God, redeemed by the Son of God, shaped by the Word of God, characterized by the love of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, committed to the mission of God. Let me say that again, because this is who we want to be as a church. The church is the people of God, redeemed by the Son of God, shaped by the Word of God, characterized by the love of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, committed to the mission of God. Would you join me in praying that we will be that church? Father, we want to thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have called us into a relationship uh, with your Son. We thank you that you have not only called us into an individual uh, relationship, but you have called us into your church, your family. And we pray that as we seek to live out the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection in our daily lives, we pray that we would, in fact, gain favor with the people. Lord, we pray that there would be many who are added to our number, those who are being saved. God, would you do that among us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.